You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kastelarsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we give you a raw and honest account of what it's like to be a rules-based investor, and what news and articles caught our attention, and of course, uh, where we also attempt to answer all of your questions. So, um, since I'm in Singapore this week. It's a kind of good evening from me, but I know it's still morning where you are, Jerry, and afternoon where you are, Mort. How are you guys doing? Great. Good evening. Good morning. How are you guys? Great. Fantastic. Yeah, doing well. As I mentioned, I mean, so spending the last few days here in Singapore, it's it's kind of funny how being in this time zone, at least for me, uh, makes you see the markets in a slightly uh, different light. Maybe perhaps most of the action really happens when when we're asleep out here, um, and uh, it's quite it's you know it's kind of a bit refreshing. Uh, you know, maybe less uh, distractions. Um, but anyways, when I was looking at the weekly changes uh, in the markets that I follow this morning, it all looked pretty. Uh, uneventful, uh, really, with just a few big movers. Like uh, I saw the VIX picked up 13% last week. And we know that's a volatile market anyway. Uh, feeder cattle, uh, palladium was well bid. Uh, and on the other side of the coin, I guess uh, net gas broke out to the downside this week and was marked down by 6% or so. So with that framework in mind, uh, Moritz, why don't we jump into it and See, um, I mean, usually when you're away traveling, it's a good week for trend funds. I'm always curious whether you've been traveling this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't been traveling. I took a few days off and uh, and actually tried to uh, to get a bit away uh, from trading. So I did the basics and you know put the trades in and stuff. But um, sure, you know didn't uh, didn't follow it all too closely. But uh, what I saw, I had a um, slide up week, so that's good when you're on vacation. You like that. And, um, you know, the bonds were coming down, you know, along the bonds, bonds were coming down for most of the week. I think on Friday they had a, they had a recovery, they went back up. Um, but I made money from the equities, um, money from uh, the commodities, still like the emissions contract that's uh, heading higher pretty much every day of this past week. Currency is relatively uneventful, um, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so, yeah, it was about a percent up. Nothing, nothing too exciting. No, no. Well, I mean, we did also find this week um, most of the action really took place on Thursday, um, from what I can see. Um, like you, I mean, fixed income did well uh, after a little bit of weakness in the early part of uh, the week, uh, picked up again. So that's nice to see. Um, uh, the euro was on sale, I guess, towards the end of the week. So that uh, helped us uh, with our short bias towards some of these currencies. Um, uh, equities kind of flat, but that's okay. Um, I guess the only one that sort of stood out to the downside was coffee, but it's doing well for the month, but just this week was a bit of a, a correction. And uh, of course, it's a holiday shortened week anyway, so... Uh, no changes in theme or, uh, or kind of positioning as such. Um, 
Yeah, as I said, it it felt um, pretty calm from from this side of the world, and uh, I think probably it was pretty calm actually. Um, yeah, unless you're a football fan, I mean, completely different topic, of course. But I I did manage to watch this. Uh, I don't know if you heard about this quarterfinal in the Champions League in Europe, but uh, there was this completely um, you know crazy game taking place, which uh, got a lot of headlines. Manchester City Tottenham. Exactly. That Great game. game. Yeah. How about you, Jerry? How was how was your week? A good week, <clears throat> especially if I don't concentrate on sports and hockey in particular. But uh, as great as the prior weekend was with basketball, we hit a new low <clears throat> in the hockey. So, um, but enough of that. Uh, so it's good to see the long trends uh, hanging in there, cattle and hawks. So that was uh, still good. And then short grains. I'm pretty heavy in the dollar, so um, it was nice to see new lows in those European currencies and maybe a few uh, currencies like the Mexican peso and Russia uh, sort of near the highs and sort of getting some longs and shorts on. That's that's good. The stocks were pretty quiet, but I guess there were some, uh, some, some stocks like healthcare, for instance, had a bad week. And so just more of the same of... There's a lot of things going on in the sectors or individual names that you don't pick up uh, as the indices all kind of look similar. So you trade the Russian ruble, actually? Yeah, we trade the okay. ruble, um, South Africa, Israel, India. And can uh, that be done via futures contracts? I've just not really Cash that gets converted into okay. futures. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Um, of course, um, always interested to hear what uh, took place as well in the um, social media world in terms of what people liked or disliked in terms of uh, the themes and the tweets uh, that you were were part of. So uh, how, how did that uh, pan out this week? Pretty quiet week for me. There were some fun things, silly things going on and, you know, we sort of like to revisit some of these same topics, uh, people hating on trend following. And now uh, it seems that um, there was a, there was an email that went out from some uh, allocator that's pretty much their whole idea was uh, our niche our niche is to avoid long-term trend followers. <laughs> so uh, that, I think they went out to thousands of managers, probably a lot of them who are long-term trend followers. And uh, I just sort of... Uh, actually, I found the, the, the firm and the link and I posted it a couple of times, but I sort of said from my spam folder, uh, quote, uh, dear trading manager, we're adding niche strategies to our approved list of managers. We have a strong bias towards strategies that are non-trend following, non-correlated to trend followers, and that have the following profile, one of which was no long-term trend followers. So um, <clears throat> I posted another tw tweet today about how Campbell is um, <clears throat> moving towards short-term trading. So it's just a Every single week, you know, it's something about uh, trend followers, trend following, and we're moving away. It's sort of uh, the thing to do that, to make sure that everyone knows you're hip and you're with it. Uh, you know, so we're just, you know, hopefully most of us would just sit back and uh, see this as sort of a good thing, I suppose. I think you're right. I mean, I did see actually the tweet and I, it put a big smile on my face when I saw the headline, you know, from my spam box. I thought that was just a folder. I thought that was just a, a great way to uh, to kick it off. Um, I mean, I think it's true. I mean, there's clearly, uh, you know, a lot of people have come out uh, this year and uh, 
you know, declaring uh, trend following is no longer um, sort of the, their part of their core uh, allocation. Um, and uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's positive uh, for us, uh, for those who uh, continue to, uh, to to focus on that and continue to like it, continue to to um, you know deliver performance uh, from from this strategy. Um, you know uh, why people tend to do it. Um, we've talked about that many times. There are, I'm sure, different reasons, um, but you know the fewer. People doing it, I think, uh, the better for those of us who um, who are still committed. Um, yeah. What about you, Moritz? Had a quiet week on Twitter. Um, the one that I remember is uh, D.E. Shaw moving back to three and thirty from currently two and a half management fee and twenty five percent performance fee, which is oh, nice. uh, in contrast to all the fee discussions that we had and you know seen over the past couple of years, really, with you know fees moving lower and lower and lower and lower, and you know pretty much everything that belongs into the alternative beta bucket, whatever the definition of that is, is kind of like low management fee only, no longer a performance fee. The two and 20 model has sailed, but then, you know, it seems to become a barbell where some managers, um, you know, they're, they're not part of this and they, uh, they, they increase their fees three and 30. So I found that really interesting, surprising to read this in the current environment, but there you are. Yeah, I mean, it's refreshing when people go uh, against stream and uh, obviously, um, I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, at least that's my view, is that it all comes down to the net returns, right? I mean, uh, you know, yeah, so I mean, Renaissance Technologies and their medallion fund, I think for a long time was charging 5 and 46. I think the fund though today is more or less for their own employees, I, although I think there still is some kind of fee, but... I remember many, many years ago, it was like 5% management fee and 46% performance fee. But of course, they still delivered really, really attractive returns uh, and, and continue to do so. So why wouldn't you pay more for that? Um, so uh, yet 99% of conversations uh, nowadays when you meet with investors is focused completely on the other side of that uh, discussion. And that is how cheap can they get it? Uh, and of course, we know that a lot of money have been raised in in uh, cheap versions of uh, trend following. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think that in the end, investors will end up regretting it. But uh, it 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 seems like there's a as a lot of focus um, on the headline number in terms of of fees. Um, so um, so that's another challenge, I guess, for the for the industry. Yeah. Back to your tweets, uh, Jerry. Um, what else got a lot of attention? Oh, I was just going to comment on that, actually. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting because if you put into a spreadsheet your performance of your system, your program, your strategy, you know, like for me, the trend following is a little like uh, whatever the return is, the max drawdown will get a, maybe one and a half to two times that. I don't know if you guys are that bad or better or uh, um, <laughs> or even want to look at that stuff. But uh, I think that's... And so when you put that into a spreadsheet and change the fee structure around, you know, then what, what I do is say, okay, I still want to kind of plan on... I'm going to rely upon the back test. So half the audience has probably left me already. 
But uh, I'm going to roll up on the back test. Then I'm going to say I'm going to still shoot for my maybe 12% return. Now, as I change the fees and um, increase them, um, what does that do to my drawdown? You know, so it's just very difficult from tr for a trend following point of view to continue to um, increase leverage in order to still deliver your objective, uh, your return, let's say. And so I think that's where it really is difficult um, <clears throat> because do you want that drawdown now to become one and a, uh, two to two and a half if you're charging three and 30? I mean, it would absolutely be that for me. It's just really f disheartening to some degree to look at that. Um, but I do think that it all boils down to, you know, if you can deliver a one return and a one X drawdown, <clears throat> then keep raising your fees. And I think that's what people are responding to is um, <clears throat> now I think it's like you were saying, it's a little dangerous to sort of think this is the new norm for CTA trend following um, that the returns are not there very often and the drawdowns still are there. So I think it is dangerous to sort of uh, focus so heavily on your the fees of your CTAs if it means that if you don't get satisfaction with those fees, you may reduce your allocation to CTAs. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you in terms of, uh, I mean, and this is, is is part of the nature and profile of trend following is that we we certainly have, uh, you know, drawdowns that are, you know, a factor of two, maybe even a factor of two and a half uh, without a sweat in terms of uh, drawdowns versus uh, the average uh, annualized return uh, that we provide. And, and I guess this is the way it's always been. And I, I wonder whether there really are, certainly in the long-term space of trend following, I don't really think there are any managers who can deliver a one-to-one -one, uh, in terms of uh, return and 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 drawdown. Um, uh, at least I haven't come across uh, that. Um, and um, But again, I mean, that's just part of the profile. I think there's nothing... Uh, wrong with it, but of course, uh, what we also have to recognize is clearly if you can, uh, if you can avoid some of that drawdown, then the compound effect. Uh, so over time, is of course significantly better if you can, you know, keep your drawdowns down to you know one and a half times rather than three, because it just takes that much longer to get back to uh, a new high after a three X uh drawdown, so to speak. So it's I mean it's worth pursuing. I just wonder how how much can we do to um to remove those uh difficult uh periods. And how much should we do? I mean, mm -hmm. because there's the risk that we change the the strategy um and, and the, the profile of the strategy. I agree with all of that. Um you know I think uh, for me it's more like two X, maybe a bit more than than two X even in terms of drawdown to return. Um, and uh, I don't think there is that much that we can really do to avoid those drawdowns. We spoke about that a couple of times mm. on earlier episodes, and we have to be really careful not to over-optimize those systems to uh, to avoid those drawdowns um, historically. And, you know, back to those fees, I, you know, I, I think it's absolutely fine to charge those fees for, you know, a higher quality return stream. Uh, as you say, Niels, at the end of the day, then that result is really what matters. And, you know, sometimes I'm approached by some smaller funds, quant funds even, 
they're co-located and they're trading high frequency, they're doing arbitrage trades, you know, between Chinese onshore commodities and commodities here in Europe or the US. And it's really, you know, it's a great strategy. They're producing fantastic sharp ratios. And of course, they're charging good fees for that. Um, and, you know, it's, I think that's fair enough because I can't really produce, produce that. And having that in my portfolio is, is a great addition, you know, all by the expensive, if you just look at the, the headline fees, but at the end of the day, the net return is still good. But all of those guys are capacity constrained. None of those firms, um, really have a strategy where they say, you know, I, I'm, I'm here to do this for a billion or more. And that's the difference between them and the Shaws and to Sigmas of the world, I think, because, you know, they, they manage to do that with that much money, that much more money, which is so much more difficult and, and therefore really impressive that they can run it in that way. Yeah, I mean, just on that whole topic, it reminds me sitting out here that there is actually a firm, uh, a, a kind of, certainly I would say a well-known quant shop out here that um, have done it a little bit differently. They're high vol, so definitely you get your drawdowns. Um, but they've also delivered high returns despite the the drawdowns. Um, and they charge uh, what you would consider as definitely full fees. Um, but what I saw recently, I think they changed it last year, is that they have now, instead of raising fees, like you mentioned, Moritz, they've actually just started introducing uh, lockups instead. So you can only invest with them now if you lock up your capital for a minimum of three years. And if you want, I think, I mean, this is needs fact checking for sure, but I think from memory, um, you can get a little bit of a fee discount if you lock your money up for five years. And, you know, that doesn't seem un, unreasonable uh, in, in some ways. I mean, if you, I mean, because we all know that uh, it's better for the client uh, to 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 stay invested for a while, uh, you know, instead of these where you see people analyzing, you know, 20, 30 years of data to make a decision to invest. And then after a year or two, um, they use that period to decide to redeem. I mean, it, that doesn't seem very clever. So, um, you know, so I think locking investors into a strategy, I mean, of course, they that maybe there should be a, a way to get out if performance really changes. But but if not, I mean, we know it's it's a much better solution for everyone uh, if you can if you can stay with investment. Just like you wouldn't expect people to invest in equities with just a one year or two year horizon. I mean, that would be foolish as well. I think it's it's difficult to have the argument um, that it's about net return work in your favor because sure that was in the past and yes if i had those past returns you could just deliver those to me today then yeah go ahead and raise your fees but you know that's it's the future and and of course the higher the fee the the odds are they're, they're changed a little bit on the successfulness of the investment going forward you know they invest with sure. us because they can't do what we do they can't do it because they don't know they can only have so much confidence they uh, probably are mandated to have some sort of, uh, I'm out, you know, I'm out. I have to have an out. If, it, if you're down 50%, I'm out. Okay, that's pretty reasonable. And so that odds of getting to that knockout point increase, I just as I just mentioned, put it into a spreadsheet and you'll see the drawdowns. Overcoming those fees, having to increase that leverage, it's 
very uh, powerful thing. I've said before on the podcast that I think to some degree you have a stronger, more profitable business if you, uh, the lower the fees are because you do have to, your AU, the standard deviation of your AUM is lower because you're not experiencing the same drawdowns with a fixed fee, for instance, versus a three and 30. In the normal world of, of CTA land, where we operate, these other guys, they're on another planet. So can't really even imagine how much fun they have. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I agree, but, but of course, you know, I don't think that many CTAs will get to the point anyways, where, where a 3% management fee will be accepted for, for the most part. But I mean, you know, uh, a percent and a half, 2%, I mean, I don't think it makes a huge difference. Um, and if you can still deliver, a decent net return, um, you know. I and you know the, the funny thing is, of course, that nobody knows what the future returns will be, anyways. But based on 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 recent performance, I mean, if you're still delivering uh, double digit returns, uh, net of all fees, um, you know, may, maybe it's okay to pay fifty basis points more. Uh, I don't know. Um, I've read these marketing books that I really over the years that I really like and. And as we know, like price sends a signal that uh, this is worthy and this mm. is something you should you should shoot for and try to one day be able to afford. And so we would be all shocked if we went into Tiffany and everything was on sale. It would diminish their own brand. And I think to some degree that's what's happened with CTAs is that uh, they too are signaling by their fee structure that, eh, we're not that great. We used to be, we used to deserve two and 20 or an incentive fee. Now, uh, we kind of agree with you, we don't. And I think some, though, have not uh, succumbed to that. <clears throat> some of our favorite traders out there with high vol, aggressive vol, our favorite one in, in uh, I think, somewhere in England, uh, you know, and it still has a, a good business. It doesn't have to be a billion dollars if you're still charging two and 20 I think that's a great point, Jerry, actually. And I think that that I think we are sending the wrong signal because as an industry, at least what I see is that a lot of people are going for these big pension fund tickets where we know they don't want to pay much, uh, you know, but still people line up to get these $200 tickets and and I wonder whether it's a business uh, whether it's a better business strategy. To be a little bit exclusive and say no, I mean we we don't re we're not really that interested in 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 clients um, on those terms or in money uh, on those terms. We, you know, then we would rather have a smaller business which allows us to trade or you know all these wonderful commodity markets anyways. Um, and uh, so the, our clients should be better off and 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 hopefully over time we as a firm will will do just fine. Uh, I think that is a great point. Why? Why should we um, chase every single dollar we, you know, we see out there? Um, I don't think we should. I agree with that. I, I don't think there's really a need to run multi-billion dollar businesses. Of course, if you have that and if you can produce fantastic returns, that's a great business. But, um, you know, you can have a lot of fun, just as Jerry said, a lot of fun running a few hundred million, less than a billion, mm -hmm. um, with good returns, charge the fees, different types of clients, um, you know, you can trade different things, uh, you know, in more of the capacity constraint markets. 
that can be a very nice business. You don't have to have a hundred employees. It can stay relatively small and flexible. So there's something that, that, that I see going for that. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, what else uh, did you see, Jerry, on, on your... I was trying to take this one article I read and torture it into something that uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to kind of get across. And, uh, <clears throat> but I'm not sure if it really fits, but it's kind of still interesting information. It was um, an article about um, Kahn- Kahneman and a Nobel Prize winner. And he was just sort of saying that uh, the, dis- the distinction between uh, happiness and satisfaction. Happiness is oh, a momentary yeah. experience. It's fleeting. Satisfaction is a long-term feeling built over time and, you know, based on achieving goals. Um, and he says, uh, working toward one goal, satisfaction, may undermine our ability to experience the other happiness. And I sort of said, uh, oh, uh, no, I'm still quoting, uh, found his research found that those focused on long-term goals that yield satisfaction don't necessarily prioritize feeling good. And I think that that reminded me of the turtle trading trading sessions in 1983, where uh, it was almost like they were saying, proper trading is not going to make you happy. If you have a system that makes you really happy, it fits your personality, it's just what you want. You better be careful. Markets don't work that way. They sort of torture you. Who wants a 40% win rate, small profits? And then you have to wait and wait for the large profits that dominate the performance that may or may not come when you want them to. Very lumpy. Big profits turn into losses. Big profits turn into small profits. Uh, So very frustrating way to trade. And I think to some degree, even if you trade short-term or long-term, once again, if you're in the normal part of the business, not the superstars we talk about sometimes, but uh, I think this probably is just something that everyone sort of deals with. It's sort of always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, I know that it's got some truth in it, this idea that um, find something that suits you or your personality in trading. And I thought, no, I mean, I think you have to be able to do it. If you can't, if you can't, uh, maybe you can't even handle the stress of the markets regardless of the performance or, you know, okay, I get that piece. But I think this whole idea of, oh, there's something out there for me that's going to make me very happy and successful uh, is probably not quite, it's probably more usual that it's, you know, to get to be successful, you're going to frequently be unhappy with the actual details and the daily experiences. Yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, discussion and, and an interesting um, topic, really. I mean, of course, we as as trend followers, we know that uh, most of the time, I mean, let alone having a 40% win rate, but if you look at the performance, I mean, we spend probably, I don't know, 80%, maybe more of the time being in some kind of drawdown. Um, and so in that sense, you can say most of the time, maybe maybe we're not, you know, that happy. But I guess what really makes us happy in in, in some ways is the fact that we, you know, we all truly believe in in what we do uh, and the strategy uh, over the long run, and um, and but as you say, it's it's a question of um, you know uh, working through uh, all of the bad stuff or or the negative sides uh, in order to enjoy and 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 reach those uh, goals and have some kind of satisfaction. I'm sure when you look back on your track record, Jerry, I mean, who wouldn't have satisfaction in in, in looking back at, at those returns, um, 
And, um, and, and I wonder, I mean, is it, as you say, it's probably not real. I mean, I, I could understand if it was some kind of sales pitch where people were selling you some kind of system saying, oh, this is going to make you, you know, happy, la, 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 la. But I mean, the reality is investing is, I mean, you're not doing it necessarily to, to be happy. You're doing it to achieve uh, certain goals with your, with your investments and your finances. Um, but I mean, I think we have expressed our honest uh, in this conversation or these conversations that, you know, what we do is not necessarily easy. Um, but you, you learn to deal with those stresses uh, over time. Yeah, and if, we, you know, if, if we're trying to raise children or, you know, they come to us and say, you know, I'm really, I know what I need to do with this homework and this schoolwork, but it really does make me happy. You know, we would totally dismiss that and say, life's not going to make you happy. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that sometimes we get kind of tricked in trading that uh, there is this thing out there. I just need to find it. And it's probably not out there. I mean, partly, and I, I don't, I don't know, but I have a feeling that still, um, you know, when, when people maybe get uh, introduced to, to trend following um, through various means, um, that maybe this picture is painted, that it's something you can do, spend, you know, 20 minutes a week and you'll be fine and, and, and you know, it's, it's just super easy and, and so on and so forth. And I think, I think we all know that, that that's not really how it works. Uh, you know, for 99% of people, maybe there are a few people who can actually do it that way, but it, it's, it's, it's very different uh, for, at least for, for us uh, in our day-to-day -day jobs. Um, so, so maybe also that's, that's the other side of things that, um, you know, the, the quote-unquote media, it's, it's being painted a little bit uh, differently to what reality is. Any views tomorrow it's on your side? Are you happy? Or oh, you always say happy trading, so you must be happy. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> that, that had to come now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I agree with Jerry. Maybe that ultimate happiness in trading isn't out there and I'm sure it's worth looking for it. Um, you have a system that you've designed that you're able to follow, uh, that you're able to stick with and, and not throw it in the bin. Uh, every time there's a drawdown or there's something that you do not like, then that is as close to happiness as it gets. If it then makes money, I'd, I'd call that satisfaction. I, you know, I really like my trading system. Um, so I, I love it. I, uh, I don't want to have any, any other system than the one that I'm trading. And I like working on it and researching it and developing it and, doing more with it over time. Um, that's just my, the piece of beauty that I've built. So that makes me happy with all the intermittent, you know, periods of, of course, disappointment and, uh, you know, um, uh, feeling let down and all the short term unhappiness. Exactly. Mars, come on. Exactly. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, I've built that, uh, to, uh, because I enjoy it to make me money. And that's, that's the core objective here at the end of the day. It's supposed to make money. And um, so, yeah, I like it. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of, you know, of my golf game. You know, it's mine. And I want to improve yeah. upon it. But I'm not, uh, for me and you, um, we, we're sort of over the, the unhappiness on a daily basis. It is the pursuit of uh, creating a strategy that we're proud of and we put our life's work in and 
we're not going to let anybody play golf for us on the weekends uh, and say, you know, how did we shoot? You know, and we don't want, we want to trade our own, our own system and methods. And that's, we see that all the time with younger people where they're not that qualified or, but uh, right out of college, they want to start a CTA fund. And you're like, no, maybe you should get a mentor and learn a little bit, but it's, like uh, trading and developing a systematic approach, you know, for us is so much fun and it's ours and we own it and we, we like it that way. Yes. And I think also there's other sides of, 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 I mean, of what we do, right? I mean, we talk a lot about what we do in terms of the trading, the results, you know, dealing with investors, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I think the other thing that, that certainly from, for my part, makes me really happy about, uh, you know about trend following is is the hopefully the impact that we can have, f uh, th you know, through education. Uh, I mean, I think that is an incredibly satisfying, um, you know, thing, and it and it certainly makes me happy when when we receive some of the uh, comments and and feedback that we get that people find it useful. So not everything is directly tied to you know, how much money did, you know, the fund produce or how many assets did we raise, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are other aspects of any job, of any profession that you have. And, um, you know, uh, anyone who can positively impact uh, the world through, you know, sharing knowledge and, and so on and so forth, I think they, they would they would probably say that that's uh, a big part of, 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 of uh, the quote-unquote happiness they get from, from from what they do, I got an email this morning from a friend of our friend of the podcast, and it just uh, you know it uh, made me think that at the same time we're kind of dedicated to these systems, and we know that the best path forward is to follow them. I think that we also need to be realistic about what we can expect from them. You know, if we've never seen a ten-year period like the last one, uh, I think it's a mistake to sort of think that we won't see things that are different um, in the future that won't look like this limited back test that we have. So we don't, we love it. We want to execute it. We know that's the best way forward, but it will, will it be great going forward? We don't really know that. <clears throat> he makes this uh, assumption. I'm interested in your opinions on uh, systematic trading believes the odds and probabilities are fixed like a casino game. Uh, I don't think I think it's fixed. I don't think I know what the odds and probabilities are. I I know that my best way forward is to take what I've put together and continue to follow it. But I don't think that I do know. You know, we'll only know in the next life. You know, how close was I? You know, to to getting it correct. What do you think? We'll know after the fact. I agree with that. I don't think there's any way that we can know the de facto uh, edge or probabilities like in a card game or in a games of chance. It doesn't It doesn't really work that way in trading. I mean, those things change. There are periods where the thing just works better than others. Um, one of those things that we have to, to deal with and, and accept is, I, I, you know, like I say, there's no way of knowing uh, the odds of us making money uh, next day, next week, next month, next year. It just unfolds as it unfolds. But, you know, based on the statistics that we have, we at least can put a trading process in place that we have some confidence with to rely on. And 
and really say that for us, this is the best, the best approach to deal with those markets in the future. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of, of, of the old, uh, I guess it came from, from Larry Hyde, I mean, quote, knowing what you don't know. And I think that's what's fixed about it. I mean, that's what we all buy into, that we don't know. I mean, we know what we don't know, and therefore we, we built our uh, trading approaches to, to handle the unknown. Um, and, and yes, we have our trade stats, which we to some extent rely on, um, but we don't rely on it religiously, meaning we don't expect it to always be constant. So I completely agree with both of you. Um, and I did see the email as well, Jerry, and I think you, I think you're right in 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 challenging that assumption uh, in the email. I don't think we we we, we take anything for granted, frankly, uh, other than we don't know. Well, we know what we don't know. And I think we're um, all committed to not only built in to our approaches uh, heavy doses of risk control and capital preservation. I think as we talked about before, every part of our, it's hard to say where does this, uh, it's all just one big ball of risk control. It's long, short, it's maximum diversification, small losses, uh, paying attention only to price trends. I mean, to my, in my opinion, that's risk control. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> I'm respecting the price trends. I'm, I'm assuming I may not know <laughs> what the future holds. And I think that, um, but on top of that, we're saying, oh, okay, I'll have another layer of portfolio management maybe to uh, preserve capital. And uh, at least I recommend that. <clears throat> Trade small, uh, have an infrequent situation, maybe where you're like, you know, really, it's really volatile here or we're, we're in a little slump losing money here, so maybe we'll trade a little bit smaller. And um, so even though we, we like what we do, we like our systematic approach, <clears throat> it gets better and better every year. Uh, we still hold out the possibility that, uh, you know, it matters, uh, risk, it matters what our drawdowns are and how we want to stay in the game. Um, which leads into another tweet. Uh, they got a lot of, uh, it's really simple. They got a lot of uh, likes this week. Um, in the world of investing, you don't have to be bold. You don't need to find alpha. You just need to survive. Investors need to stay in the game, make sure that you live to invest another day. And I would say that our strategy, once again, does that better than anything as long as we have our leverage at a normal, you know, daily P&Ls or uh, risk units at a normal, uh, something we can handle and, and our clients can handle. And then, um, but still, you know, whatever it takes to stay in the, in the game, that's what one should do. And of course, a lot of the things we talk about, um, for us, these are really just common sense approaches to investing, which makes it even uh, sometimes harder for me to understand the amount of resistance we meet compared to uh, other types of strategies um, where, you know, whether it's the old notion that what we do is a black box and people have no clue what's going on inside. I mean, compare that to a discretionary trader or a high frequency trader or you know many many machine learning for that matter i mean that's the ultimate black box in some ways in my opinion so i mean there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of resistance uh to to these you know very 
I think, pretty basic, pragmatic uh, ways of approaching um, investing. I like the uh, the surviving part of that. I mean, the saying is there. What is the saying again? With the old and the bold traders, there may be there's no old bold traders, but there can be old or bold traders or something like that. But it's uh, it's really that the surviving is is key if you're if you're able to uh, to navigate those volatile, difficult markets for years and years and years without you know blowing up an account. And how disastrous would it be to uh, to have that accident at a uh, later stage in your life? Um, that would be such a bummer. So really the, the surviving, and I hear this over and over again when people are interviewed, you know, people with, you know, 40, 50 year trading, you know, experience in the markets still there, still showing up every day trading, they survived and they've made the money. They kind of like, you know, were able to to work through those markets um, without without blowing up. And this is, this sounds so easy, but I, you know, doing this for 40, 50 years, if you're able to, to finish at the finish line, then that's an achievement. I, uh, I think there's something about that. Yeah, I wanted to mention uh, a few minutes ago, I forgot. Uh, but when we were talking about uh, the drawdowns being twice as large, roughly, as the returns, uh, you know, what are these drawdowns happening? You know, <clears throat> this is a strategy that uh, most of the time the drawdown you know, we're down 15%, but I'm still up 20%, you know, for the year. So that's really nice. You know, it's a, it's a, the sharp can't really capture what we do. Uh, even drawdowns to some degree are not as great a uh, way of capturing our risk. Um, so that's important. You know, if you're still up 20% for the year after a 15% drawdown, that's a lot different uh, than a lot of strategies. And then I think it's kind of funny that, I feel because a lot of people in the futures business and in CTAs are, you know, come from very conservative uh, accounting or, you know, backgrounds. And uh, <clears throat> here we have futures, we have uh, leverage, we have commodities, cattle and hogs, long and short. It just, it's just everything about it is these guys are crazy, out of the mainstream, really risky. And we're like, even the black box, you know, oh, the black box, but well, the black box takes small losses, it's massively diversified, has longs and shorts, uses leverage to uh, fine tune risk in all of the different markets and sectors. And everything we do, according to us, the way we feel about it is it's all about risk control, but we send these signals out, shorts and futures that uh, it's difficult for everyone to kind of wrap their arms around. I think on top of all of that, which I uh, completely agree with, Jerry, I mean, I think maybe there's one more thing that we need to add to the list, something that you don't hear on uh, the uh, mainstream financial news channels when people are interviewed, and that's just the answer called, I don't know. I mean, you never hear people on financial news media, say, media admit to, you know, I don't know. I mean, but that's all you hear from our industry every time we're asked. I mean, you were talking offline about, you know, you being uh, on, on 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 news, uh, being interviewed on, on various news channels and, and often they're going to, you know, always spring in, you know, a kind of a fundamental question. And of course, the the typical answer for, from a trend follower is, you know, I don't know. Um and um, which we've obviously seen uh, some of our some of the real um, super superstars in in this industry uh, 
being interviewed on Bloomberg many times where they always at the end of the day want to know also oh, where is the goal going and and they politely say for the you know 15th time um, we don't know that's not how we trade and and maybe that's part of the equation the fact that we just admit to the fact that we don't know what's going to happen in the future I and mean, it's not a very sexy answer to give even though it's the honest answer to give and even though everybody should be saying that because nobody knows that's right. And I, I kind of uh, blew that last interview. I should have been, you know, more out there on that. I was thinking to myself about that. And because what I really believe is um, it's sort of better to fade the fundamentals and fade the news and hope that uh, the trend is one way and the popular wisdom and uh, obvious trade is the other way. So we just have to keep saying that and, you know, performance will eventually catch up and uh, we'll... But you have to be out there and be and be adamant about what you really believe in, so you'll get the rewards. When uh, <clears throat> when um, I mean, I don't remember anyone in two thousand eight uh, at the top of the stock market letting everyone know. I mean, maybe we apologize for not making as much money or not having as being long enough. But uh, every day we have the same message we could have put, we could have said back then, which was it's very risky. Uh, to uh, not have a systematic approach that gets you uh, in gear with the trend and that doesn't trade currencies, commodities, stocks and bonds, long and short. And every now and then, just telling the truth and being adamant about it in the face of bad performance or underperformance, that's how you're going to get the rewards. Yeah. And you have to survive. Just want want to come back to that because, you know, we said... Earlier we spoke about what are the objectives, what are the goals, and it's like, yeah, making money. But just thinking about that, I mean, I also really want that trading system of mine uh, still alive and kicking uh, when I'm an old man with gray hair or no hair. So to have survived those markets. And, you know, when when you hear the, um, you know, traders talk with, you know, very, very long track records, you get the feeling that they were extremely aware of how treacherous those markets can be and that the markets, they always kept them on their toes. And I think that's important to not, you know, become complacent, even though we're running that systematic system, which we think, yeah, that's the best approach to those markets out there. But it's like, you know, I can see this in myself. I, you know, think, you know, about the risk and the risk control and, you know, where, is it maybe that I'm taking too much risk? Things like this are on my mind all the time because I don't want to be blowing that account up. So I have to be extremely attentive and, you know, eyes wide open to that because I'm also trading, you know, at a relatively higher level of volatility. So it's, um, you cannot, you cannot become complacent in those things. And, you know, they're, they're really, when you think about it, I mean, how many traders are there that have completed a, a life's worth of trading without without blowing up, right? There, there aren't really that many. Sure, more than a handful, you know, but you see the point, right? There are so many more traders that you do not know, you cannot know because you will never hear about them because they didn't make it to the finish line. And I just want to belong to the former group, the finishers, as opposed to those that fail. I mean, I think that's a great point, uh, Martin. Of course, when we talk about, you know, having a goal to, a goal of, of making money for our clients, I mean, first and foremost, I think what we're really saying is, I mean, 
we we're risk managers. I mean, that's what we do. We know yes. that we don't control returns, but what we do have some say in is risk management. So that's our starting point, right? I mean, we don't sit down and say, oh, let's make 15% this year. I mean, we don't do that. But we do sit down and say, well, let's, you know, divide our risk budget into all of these buckets and let's have, you know, some rules for how much we can risk in any one opportunity and all of these things. And that will then lead to, um, you know, some level of return, which is, you know, to some extent reasonably um, consistent over time, if I can put it like that. So uh, maybe I'll just end uh, yeah. with, um, actually, I was incorrect on this article. It's actually Harry Markowitz talking about uh, artificial intelligence. And I think he quoted Kahneman. But anyways, he goes on to um, say, Markowitz goes on to say, we were born in a risky world and remain in a risky world. Ten years from now, it will be a risky world as long as you want to earn money and invest. The interviewer says, some people believe there's no need to diversify. Your thoughts, uh, he says, they come to sorrow. So I think uh, we know better. We have no choice. Uh, we're flexible. We'll change when the evidence tells us to change. But uh, we're, and I, and we're, I think by and large, we're happy in our state of uh, uh, given how we're thought of and given the AUM we have. It's not as much as we want, but we're would only be miserable uh, taking that into consideration as relates to our trading strategies. So maybe the way to think about this happiness that we talked about before is that what would make us really unhappy is not doing things the way we do. I mean, maybe we can't be happy all the time doing, the, doing what we do, but we certainly would be unhappy if we weren't doing exactly as you say, Jerry, you know, trading small and long short and you know, diversification and all those uh, good things. Depending on the outcome, maybe it would make me happy, but I can tell you I'll be uncomfortable doing it any other way. Mm. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, let's um, turn our attention to some of the questions. Oh, by the way, um, I'll probably try and plug this a couple of times. I'll mention this uh, next week. We have a great guest, um, a friend of, uh, well, certainly a big inspiration for many of the tweets that we uh, discuss uh, each, each week which is Wayne. And um, so um, send us your questions uh, to info at toptradersonplug.com. So next week we'll probably do more questions um, that we can involve uh, Wayne in. And um, and it's going to be a great conversation, I'm sure. Um, but for this week, we do have some questions. Um, and one of them, the first one is um, is from George. We mention George uh, often because he helps us uh, in the in the background, um, and we're very grateful for that. Um, but one of the things we sometimes end up talking about is this: should I start my, you know, should I start my own trend following, um, you know, trading career, or should I just, as an investor, find uh, a couple of. Uh, trend followers um, to invest with. And, um, and I think very often we end up talking about it in, in um, kind of just looking at whether or not you can develop a strategy that is as good as those who've been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, but there's another aspect, another aspect of that, which is what um, George actually uh, points out. Um, 
he says, uh, consider also discussing, you know, operational nightmare that is running a trading system, paying for the data, cleaning the data, dealing with missing data, API setup, API failures, hiring coders, hiring backup, uh, yeah, hiring backups, dealing with software updates and compatibi- compatibility, internet failures, cybersecurity regulations, dealing with the fact that 100 coders would build 100 unique programs with the same exact specs and programmers find new jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, I think what, what George is reminding us about is that there's another side of becoming, um, you know, a trend-following uh, manager and, and, and managing uh, other people's money. And, and that is all the, all the stuff that happens in the background uh, in order to run a successful uh, business. Um, and I think he makes uh, a very valid point. Uh, I mean, it is not it is not easy uh, to get all these things right. Uh, that takes, you know, an equal amount of uh, hard work and experience. It's not all about finding the right rules um, and um, you know for for the model itself. Yes, very good point yes. there. I, I I like that point because I don't think we've touched on that all too much in, in prior episodes. And so there, there is a cost and there's lots of operational work and complexities in that if you're running a, you know, regulated, um, futures trading firm CTA with say different managed accounts, single managed accounts, a fund, all of that. I mean, it's, it requires, um, some heavy lifting in terms of the technology technologies and the infrastructure that you need to build all the APIs, all the interfaces and connections to uh, execution brokers and clearing brokers, the, you know, fixed protocol or whether you're using FTP servers to, uh, to take back, um, take back the orders, then you need to allocate them. You need to instruct the, the take ups and the give ups and all of that reconcile, um, make sure you have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted, um, all the trades match, all of this, then the redundancy, the cost for data, um, cost for systems, if you don't want to program it all yourself. So if you want to, you know, use something that's, that's off the shelf. So it's not to be underestimated that, um, running this on a day-to-day basis is, um, requires experience and knowledge, uh, about it and programming and, you know, how the pipelines, uh, between the different parties involved in, in what you're doing, uh, how they connect and how they work. And, um, and there are costs, uh, for data and, you know, all of that. So very good point. This is not just, uh, you know, a five minute a day type of thing to do. Yeah. Did you want to add something, um, to this, Jerry? Well, I've been in situations where everything was handed to me on a silver platter and I really enjoyed it. I just came in at seven thirty and I left at two fifteen and, all I did was sit in front of the quote machine and trade, and uh, that was really fun, but it's pretty rare. Um, <clears throat> I do think it's really good for if you get into a situation where you are trading and doing research that you can eliminate some of these admin and not take it on all yourself. Um, but uh, it's a lot to do if you want to do it well. You don't even know. It's, it's, it's a little bit more than just bringing up uh, moving averages on a chart. I mean, I agree, and and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm certainly impressed when I look at uh, 
certainly on our side, and I know this is true for, for, for you guys and, and, and for many other firms in our industry, when I look at the attention to detail that is being paid by, uh, you know, people in different uh, parts of the organization, whether it's the traders, whether it's the operational people, uh, of course, we know with research, et cetera, et cetera, and, 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 you know, software development. I mean, you know, as an industry, I think we go, uh, you know, a long, long way when it comes to um, eliminating uh, potential errors and 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 so on and so forth, um, and just 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 from from the you know even on the accounting side, I mean, uh, I know Jerry, you and I have known a firm for for a very long time um, that that just you know is extraordinary to uh, to be able to you know find even the smallest mismatches uh, when it comes to. The daily accounting of uh, you know of, of client accounts of funds etc cetera, etc cetera. even even to a point where they you know might pick up things that that even the administrator has not picked up I mean but it's that kind of level of detail that is required to deliver um, you know great great service uh, on all fronts it's not just about the returns uh, that people see all right should we move on to the next uh, question? Uh, this is from uh, Craig. And um, Craig brings up a, an interesting uh, point, um, I think. Um, he says that Patrick O'Shaughnessy raised what I thought was an interesting point in his OSAM quarterly investment letter regarding the extensiveness of his firm's research graveyard, meaning research that ended up inconclusive or invalid being a considerably considerable edge to his firm. Do you think this applies equally to trend following? Is your research uh, graveyard something you would uh, publicize to your investors? And what were the biggest surprises in your research graveyard, if you don't mind me asking? Interesting question, I thought. Thanks, Craig, for for that. Um, Anybody who has some thoughts, um, I'm happy to kick off, if not. Great, great question. And uh, I have a massive graveyard. (laughs) And uh, it's a uh, it's a valuable graveyard. I mean, graveyard is a bad word, but uh, you know, all the research that I've uh, I've done, the ideas that I had, ideas which I was so excited about, without having tested them. Like you know, just thinking about them, I got so excited about this great new idea that I you know ran up to my office and immediately tried it out, and you know, locked myself in for hours and, you know, tried that thing out only to realize that it doesn't work or that, you know, I outsmarted myself and my thinking wasn't clear. And this happens over and over again, like, um, tested so many things, tried out so many, you know, different ways of trading the markets long and short and shorter term and long term and this and that and the other. And, um, to be honest, 95 to 97% of all the things that I've tried, I've, I do not trade and they are part of that graveyard, but it's such a valuable repository to have those failed ideas because when you work on them, this is when you become clear, you learn, um, that, you know, this, the idea that you had is an idea that you just must, must ditch because there's, you know, there's something wrong with it. So, 
to me, this is one of the, it's part of the process that that's the way to move forward is by failing on those ideas. I mean, I think that that's not just with trend following. I think that's with so many things. But I think in particular, my my view on on trend following and research has always been that, you know, it's really about finding all the things that doesn't work, you know, in order for you to find the things that work. And And so you're absolutely right. I mean, most things by a wide margin that we look at, you know, will will not work by definition but you know in order to find that one you know one or two things that really can you know move the dial you have to test um you know many things and i don't think that's so different from other businesses um so a graveyard can be something that you can go back and revisit and see if you can you know actually make something of it later on that you hadn't thought of but i think a graveyard in itself is just a good I mean, it's a good description of of just ideas that you had to try out to make sure uh, that you haven't missed anything. And then sometimes you stumble across something that actually turns out to be really valuable. What about you? Uh, Jerry, do you have a big graveyard where you are? (laughs) You know, I was just limiting myself over the years to only being interested in trend following and diversification uh, and then just trying within that framework. And so I really limited... uh, to some degrees, my creativity and and also limited the amount of time that I wasted. Uh, but I think, uh, as I've said before, we you know had a lot of ideas, bad ideas, uh, ideas that sort of um, were not trend in nature. But the one that I've mentioned before that stands out is I, we were toying around with uh, price uh, profit objectives. So if we make you know. Uh, 50 ATRs, 20 ATRs. What, what happens if we just take a profit? And uh, my research guys came back and said, yeah, you know, this suffers from a sample size problem. But, uh, you know, obviously, if you have a big trade and you make money, taking some off is not going to hurt on the back test. You know, it's the back test. Uh, in the future, I think it would hurt. But, but then he said, um, but if you just waited till five days lower, it would make more money. So uh, even when you're doing something wrong, if you put a little bit of trend to it, it'll, you'll see some improvement. So I think that just continuing to be uh, impressed by how powerful following prices and buying higher prices, selling lower prices uh, is how powerful that is, uh, is what sticks out to me. Absolutely. Next question is from uh, Carl, and Carl has a question about um, stops, stop strategies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I know that we have talked about this before, but let's uh, let's spend some time of, uh, answering this question. But I just want to say to you, Carl, that if you go back, and I don't remember exactly which episodes they are, but, but there's certainly been um, you know discussions before about some of these. Uh, so if we leave out uh, something today, by all means, you might be able to find um, you know, some comments uh, in previous episodes. Um, so, um, and by the way, to all of you who wrote to us this week, um, quite a few of you, about the question that we posed to you last week, which was about the length of the episode. Should we go for an hour, an hour and a half or whatever? I think actually you all came back saying, you know, we should just continue to do what we do when we have things to talk about. We we talk about them and 
those weeks where we may not have so much, well, maybe we have a shorter episode. So we appreciate your feedback. Keep it coming. Uh, it's super helpful for us. Um, okay, back to Carl's question. Question one is about the initial stop. Where do you go, guys place your initial stop? I guess it all comes down to what Jerry says, the sweet spot and playing with the numbers, but with a broad brush, of course. And... Um, and, and just from my point, um, Carl, I mean, of course, I'm sure you, you're not expecting us to tell us exactly where we place our stops, but for our part, we don't really use stops. So, so it's an easy question for me to, to answer. We, we manage risk, uh, in, in another way. Um, and, and therefore it's not something I can really, um, uh, yeah, give you a lot of feedback from, from, a from our point of view, at least. Um, I'm going to read the other questions since they relate to stops. And and, and I think, uh, you know, Jerry and Moritz will have more to say about this. Um, question two, if, for instance, I use a 5X ATR 20-day period for the initial stop, could I use this for both a moving average crossover system and a breakout system? And, and question three is just, um, may I have some trailing stop ideas um and carl finished off with some very nice comments about uh the podcast so thanks for that but let me turn it over to you guys um when it comes to stops and and just your general thoughts uh about some of the questions that um carl raises here uh yeah okay um so Part of the question was, can we use an ATR-based stop uh, with a moving average system as well or moving average yeah, crossover? That was one, yeah, that was one of the questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I don't do that, but I think it's possible. So, you know, you may think of uh, getting an entry signal because you have a moving edge, uh, a moving average crossover system um, signaling you to go long and buy a contract. You could then, you know, use that point and figure out a stop, an initial stop, that is, you know, certain ATR away from your trade initiation point, so that that you know it can be designed in that way, so that it works. I, I don't see why it couldn't. Um, so with and of course it can be done with breakouts and you know really any other signal that you get. Um, so I take I take an initial stop just as uh, as Carl uh, suggests. It's, it's a certain you know, ATR number away from the level where I initiated the trade. And then, uh, and then that stop starts, starts to move, starts to trail, uh, based on, you know, uh, new highs or lows that the market, uh, that the markets make. Um, so it starts moving over time, um, as my position develops. Yeah. Before you jump in here, Jerry, um, I just wanted to say, um, I was trying to visualize what you were just saying there, more. It's about using a an ATR stop for moving average crossover system. I'm wondering whether that's such an easy thing to do because your signal then might change again before you hit your stop. So what are you going to follow? Uh, well, I guess you could combine it maybe. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. exactly. Right. So you have to differentiate the entry signal yeah. and the exit okay. signal, right? So if you just do, if you use it as an entry... And you have that, say, the golden cross, which is the 50-day and 200-day, and the 50-day moves higher than the 200-day moving average. Then that that would be a signal to go long. You can then initiate the trade and place a stop uh, 
lower than where you initiated the trade by a certain number of ATRs. This is then, then you have a different exit methodology, right? Then you need to do something with that stop, either have it trail over time or, you know, find another exit point. But you're right, Niels, it, it wouldn't be the just, you know, do the, do the crossover right. to go in and then go out, go in, go out. It you know has another level value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it. I mean, I think it's interesting, and I don't think there's anything wrong. I certainly remember in my career having been involved with systems where we 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 were using different kind of stops, and maybe this is an a, an idea, Carl, which you know is not very novel, but maybe it's not a bad idea to use different kinds of stop, and then always on the day of your trading, pick the one that's closest. Uh, I think that's a perfectly uh, reasonable way of doing it. Um, and uh, so it doesn't matter how many, you know, different types of stops you use, but if you always in, you know, as your actual live stop would use the one that that is close to the price, maybe, um, you know, maybe that's perfectly fine. And that could certainly mean that you could combine moving average crossover with uh, a stop based on ATR, but it may be that it's the moving average crossover that gets you out before uh, your ATR stop is hit but there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, anyways, Jerry, you might think completely different to us. No, I, I, that's how it works. Um, okay. I think um, the most important thing about that entry, I like the Golden Cross uh, 50 by 200 or 50 by 250, primarily because that's, I think, uh, a good time frame. So that's your look back period. I'm doing a trade once or twice or three times a year. Yeah, that's where I think is we should start. Uh, the problem with a stop being close, uh, whether it's a trailing stop, exit stop, or a stop loss, is you, know, you have to get back in. You get out, it, it hits your stop, it goes right back to the highs, you got to get back in. So if it's too close, you're in and you're out, you're in and you're out, the market's gone a ways, you've just lost money. Um, so you want to kind of avoid that. You probably want to avoid getting too long-term as well. So just keep narrowing it in and looking at the data and say, you know, how short-term can I be without having uh, too many of these whipsaws? I think that's the crucial thing to figure out first is your time frame. One to two trades a year seems awfully long-term. It's almost like buy and hold. I know, but... Maybe you can do better. You certainly should have a goal to do better than me. Good stuff. Well, I hope that's uh, useful for you, Carl, with a little bit of thought. And as I said, there is definitely some more stuff to be dug out from previous episodes, uh, as this is a, a topic we've uh, we've uh, been asked about uh, before. Um, next question is from Michael. Uh, Michael, um, you know, thanks for the question you sent in. Uh, an interesting one. So uh, Michael is asking, uh, what are your thoughts about developing your robust trading system and how many variables do you typically have in a system? I've done some system developing and found that not uh, to over-optimize and try to find systems that work over many issues that I have to use only a few variables. Um, I'm not sure I really read that correctly, but I hope you got the uh, the gist of that. Also, do each develop systems with different variables uh, for each of the grouping, softs, indices, metals, etc., uh, or try to develop systems that work uh, over all groupings? Um, so, Michael, from, from our point of view, 
to answer your last question first, um, we used to do that uh, in the early days um, of um, of our uh, business. So from sort of mid seventies all the way up to uh, early two thousands, um, we were in fact using slightly different parameter settings um, for each of the markets that we trade, but found that it would be a better idea and a better approach to use universal uh, parameter settings for all markets. So so that's what we've been doing uh, for the past uh, 13 uh, years or so. So, you know, in terms of robustness, we find that uh, you should be able to trade all markets um, using the same uh, methodology. And in terms of the various... Uh, variables. I mean, um, we, we use uh, a couple of different methods of of uh, of trend following. Um, you know, we have traditional breakout, like uh, Moritz and Jerry has. Uh, in this case, we look at volatility rather than price. But in generally, that's you know a, a quite a, a kind of a simple uh, approach to to trend following, where you only need a couple of different parameters, namely volatility uh, and time. And, and that, you know, def- definitely works uh, and has done for us for 45 years. Um, but we also use a different type of um, trend following, which I think um, some people would refer to as kind of, you know, time series uh, momentum. So it's a slightly different way of looking at trends or, or identifying trends. But I think the secret source that we use is that then we, we add a few uh, filters to that. Um, that's, I think, is kind of our our secret sauce when it comes to, um, uh, you know, making that type of trend following maybe a little bit unique to compared to other people uh, doing it that way. And uh, and then finally, you know, again, on top of all of these things, you you need to consider, you know, your, your exits. Where we talked about that many times. I mean, how, do you want something... Um, you know, on top of your traditional exits coming from those uh, signals, um, and uh, and finally your your risk management. So that's how we do it. And I, and I think generally you're right about uh, the point about keeping things simple. Uh, and we've talked about that many times. I mean, good enough is good enough, um, and and you kind of have to accept uh, that in, instead of trying to um, find things that you know uh, will uh, t- you know to try and avoid, uh, you know, some of the bad stuff. I mean, trend following will have some bad stuff in it. That's just the way it works. You have to lose money to make money when it comes to trend following. So don't try and and, and be too clever about it. Well, I think um, filters are good on the entry side. I think uh, that's a pretty good idea that if you uh, add something to the breakout or the moving average crossover, uh, I think that's going to reduce the number of trades, you know, that you have your sample size. So that's <clears throat> to be considered. Um, you can't have a filter that doesn't allow you to get into the trade. I know I used to have this low vol filter. And if the market doesn't have a lower vol, I would pass on the trade. And that's a no-no. Uh, <clears throat> the back, the, the future is not subject to the back test. <clears throat> All you need is a couple of huge monster winners. Oops. Back test now has changed. I uh, cannot risk missing a big trend, even if the vol is uh, doesn't meet my filter requirements. Uh, and I think on the exits, especially, you know, it, I feel like you would get in trouble 
if uh, you have two different types of exits. I have, if this happens, I get out, or if this happens, I get out. Well, that's exactly what you do with a stop loss. So that's the downside of having a stop loss. It's two different groups of trades. Uh, but I think that uh, if you have some, an, an or, uh, I mean an and, if this happens and this happens, then I get in or then I get out, that's okay. But I think if it's this or that, I think that's where you kind of run into problems. I agree with all you said. Um, I like simplicity. I like uh, to keep the the number of parameters as small as possible, really, um, because this this produces the, the the big sample size, right? Uh, the greater the number of parameters, then all else being equal, the smaller your sample size, and the smaller the number of parameters that you're using, that's really the best recipe to avoid over optimization and and ensure that you have a you know robust trading system at the end of the day so i don't really use uh that many crucial parameters i mean of course yes the the atr what atr is it is it 20 day atr is it uh 30 40 is it the max of two atrs you know things like this um and then obviously you know where to get in uh on a high a new high what high what you know what time frame how to get out is uh is the time frame to get out the same as the time frame to get in so say you get in on a 40-day high or a 50-day high do you want to get out on a 50-day low uh or do those numbers you know can they be different they're, they're different in my case but you know it gives you an idea for the parameters that i'm using i'm i'm using volatility floors also on uh on markets which uh you know and, and that is relevant markets which produce very little volatility such as the short-term interest rate futures um i have a volatility floor there that you know prevents me from over trading and getting too large in those markets but really um there there aren't that many more crucial bells and whistles uh, other than that that's a good uh, interesting thing i i use those same um something we can talk about at a later episode but i mean it's just difficult i think to some degree for us to find things that we we disagree on uh, you know just <laughs> i don't really like disagree with it i'm just perplexed by that subject um so your dollars have a very low atr um your position can get the number of contracts can get very high i lived through a period uh, october of 87 where there was a just an unbelievable negative uh, counter trend rally in the euro dollars and uh, it's a potential wipeout situation. And for years, I, I did the same thing. I would have a minimum ATR is what I called it. I think that's what you're saying. So, uh, but then I yeah. think, you know, that's inconsistency. Uh, the computer says, no, I'm not going to reward that. Um, take it off the trade sheet or come up with another way. You know, you're asking me to calculate this ATR. I'm trying to be consistent. I'm just going to show you worse results because for whatever reason, now you've input a new number that I didn't come up with. I didn't follow the rule. I got overridden. I cannot reward that. And it won't. It'll be less performance. But you may say, oh, that's fine. I mean, I'll take less performance. I need to stay alive. Staying alive kind of trumps everything. Uh, but then I sort of changed my opinion on that. And I said, no, I'm not going to use these minimum ATRs anymore. I'm going to just trade it a lot smaller. I'm going to do the right thing and just make that position in those short-term rates kind of small 
uh, so they can't crush me because I don't want to. And I just find it, I, I'll, I'll probably change my mind like next week because I go back and forth on this. I was just wondering if well, you have an opinion I'll, on that. Yeah, my, my opinion is that maybe you don't necessarily need a minimum uh, volatility floor, but maybe you just say, okay, I'm going to calculate my volatility over two different time frames. So I have, you know, one that might be only a month, uh, so to speak, to kind of have a current level of volatility. And one might be uh, over a lot longer period of time and, and you simply take the higher of the two. So you're not really imposing an artificial flaw. You're just saying, okay, you know, sometimes markets can go through a shorter term, um, you know, uh, unusual level of volatility, let's call it that. It could be unusually low for a while. But then if we take it over a longer period of time, we should be comfortable having captured, uh, you know, a decent level of, of wall so we don't uh, overexpose ourselves in terms of position sizing. So I'm, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm using two different ATR windows, a longer term one and a shorter term one. And I'm using the higher of those, right? To, uh, so that keeps my position size smaller mm. as opposed to just using, say, a shorter term one or just a longer term one. Yeah. Um, but the... Uh, you know, the volatility floor or the minimum ATR. So say you looked at the euro dollar, whether you, you know, say you have, you know, a 20 day ATR on the euro dollar and a 100 day ATR on the euro dollar, it's probably roughly the same mm. at that point in time. And, and really for me, it's uh, like Jerry said, it's about that staying alive type of thing. Um, remember 2015 with the, the Swiss franc, right? We, there are, there are these, um, events where markets gap or move so strongly, so fast that if you're overexposed, it may be game over and that must be avoided at all cost. I'm not 100% sure that the minimum ATR or the volatility floor, as I call it, is the, uh, the absolute best way of going about those things. To me, it's one way one risk control feature that that I'm using to survive. Um, there may be other things that, you know, maybe I think about in the future that which I will then implement or, you know, change the thing altogether. But for now, um, this just appears to uh, to make sense to me because it's not just it's not just the euro dollar. You know, I have really quite a few markets in my portfolio. And we're in a low volatility environment anyway, right? Um, quite a few markets in, in my portfolio, which come up with, um, you know, substantial position sizes, given that volatilities are so low. And when I then look at the notional exposure across all my portfolio, I just, you know, I think we had it on the earlier episode, it's important that we can still sleep well at night. I just don't want those things to be too large. Yeah, that's one of our... Achilles heels. It's very scientific to use ATR and set up the portfolio where you're really getting the real diversification, not just based upon notional value. But that's you know one of the one of the things that doesn't appear that often. That uh, when you're really happy that you're trading small, is that you can have these uh, certain markets, especially the euro dollars and the markets that are have low vol that you have to really leverage up in order to have the Swiss franc or the euro dollar be the same position as your S&P. 
And that's what we all kind of do from a risk and expected return point of view. Uh, but I will say that uh, tongue-in-cheek, this is another example of now I can disagree with both of you guys because um, I did something similar uh, as it related to this, and I said, okay, just choose the higher. And then once again, I got back bad results, and my people kept telling me, you know, we get worse results if we tell the system, choose the ATR that's the highest. And I'm like, yeah, of course we are, because we are not being consistent. We're, uh, we have written a rule, which is good, and we are following it, which is good. But, but what is snuck into our system is we have, we're, we're, we're having the computer not be 100% consistent. And so I think that from my point of view, uh, <clears throat> you need to sort of decide both of these ideas, the long-term, the short-term, ATR, they have their weaknesses, but you got to choose one. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, that's absolutely true. And um, I mean, again, as you say, I mean, you can choose one or, or in a sense that the, the choice that uh, that Mart is making to say, okay, I, I choose a different, you know, combination because at the end of the day, it's never going to be perfect. Um, either, either either choice is not going to be perfect, and it's not it's not it doesn't have to be perfect. But you know, it's true. Now, um, last question for today. Now, this is a question that is almost identical, I would say, to Carl's question. This is from. "Quote unquote, Uncle Mike." It's not really my uncle, but he calls himself Uncle Mike, so I might just call you Mike. Uh, thanks for your question, Mike. Um, and he's he asks in developing your systems, what do you find that works best for stops, uh, and are they different based upon the holding time frame? Smaller stops for shorter time, uh, short term systems. Uh, I would think that volatility based stops may work best, but I'm. Um, uh, sure, your PhD math major analysts have a better handle on this than I do. Uh, and trend following inherently needs room to breathe, and sometimes you end up giving back a lot of the open profit when a trend is in the middle of uh, of that and changing direction. So, how have you dealt with uh, this situation slash problem in your in the systems that you're currently running? I know, Jerry, you often talk about you know, open profits and, and, and what can happen uh, with that. So maybe since we have talked about this previously uh, today, do you want to give a little bit of just so your philosophy on, on this, uh, Jerry, uh, when it comes to dealing with some of these situations that uh, Mike is, is asking about? Well, unfortunately, you know, in order to get the big profits, you have to be longer term these days and uh, hang in there and uh, absorb some of the ups and downs and, uh, as I talked about the past few weeks, you know, um, some of the sell-offs like uh, I think hogs um, and emissions, you know, we hung in there, but the, and they went back to the highs. Great, that's what the computer says. Uh, hang in, uh, have a sort of a fifty by two hundred exit, and then uh, that time frame, and because the markets do have a tendency to keep going, and uh, that's uh, superior. But then, of course, we had. Um, palladium and it doesn't look like that that is going to get back up there it might and so you have these crashes and you give back a lot of profit so it's um, unfortunately that's the way we a lot of ctas have analyzed the markets these days to be longer term whether you have a lot of money under management or not and then of course there'll be other ctas who say yeah that seems to be getting crowded as well uh, so what do we do now and so i think uh, for me i'm 
not going to do too much and just wait for better trends and maybe fewer crashes. Yeah. And, 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 and I mean, you, you, you raised the question, um, Mike, in, in the thing about, you know, whether you have tighter stops for short term timeframes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, since we're all, um, you know, longer term uh, trend followers, we, we probably, um, you know, deal with, you know, stops and, and, and risk management in a very similar way. Um, but if you asked a, a short term manager, maybe you would get an answer like that. But, but I, I don't have any particular view on that. And of course, you, there are ways, of course, where you, you can allow your stop to, um, you know, the, the trading stop that we've talked about earlier in this uh, podcast, uh, you know, will vary, of course, from time to time. Um, but I think also Jerry's point about uh, allowing um, a good deal of the open profit to, uh, you know, go away uh, at times during the trend. I mean, that's also very important. Um, those were the questions. Thanks so much for sending them in. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, send them to uh, info at toptradersonplug.com and we will do our best to uh, to uh, answer your questions. Um, let me just run through uh, performance uh, while uh, the two of you think about any other topics you want to raise today. Um, uh, so as of Thursday evening this week, uh, which of course is probably not going to have changed Friday since it was Good Friday around the world. Um, so I would say these numbers are pretty much uh, where we are at the end of the week. Uh, the beta 50 index is up 1.29% for the month, up 3% for the year. Uh, Sockgen CTA index up 0.72%, up 2.66 for the year. Sockgen trend index up 1.07, up 3.99, uh, let's call it 4 for the year. And the Sockgen uh, short-term traders index down 0.83 of a percent, down 2.62. And the bridge alternatives index uh, down 0.22% for the month and, and up 0.72 for the year. So generally CTAs and uh, trend follow still doing uh, okay uh, so far in 2019, whilst the shorter-term guys are having a little bit more of a challenge uh, so far. Uh, and let me also just remind uh, everyone the next uh, week, uh, one of our favorite Twitter friends and inspirations, Wayne uh, Himmelsign, will be uh, on the podcast. Uh, he's the founder of Logica Capital Advisors, and he'll be joining us. So um, make sure you send all your questions for Wayne um, to info at toptradersonplug.com. Guys, yet again, we managed to... Uh, reached the one and a half hours. We hope people are still with us. We appreciate it. And um, anything you want to bring up before we we um, we say goodbye for now? I like the industry numbers that you just reported. They sound good. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Happy trading. <laughs> uh, embrace your unhappy trading if you have any. <laughs> or exactly. better satisfaction in the future. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Some of the listeners are writing in saying, Jerry, you have to write them down, all your uh, slogans, so uh, we don't forget them. Uh, maybe we should have a contest. I'll just choose oh, yeah. one. Uh, and I'll have to tape it up to my monitor here so I won't forget it. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, I mean, it is very late here in Singapore. It's still morning where Jerry is, but we hope that uh, you enjoyed 
uh, our conversation as much as I'm sure you can hear we enjoy uh, making them. And if you do want to give something back to us, uh, all we ask for is that you share these podcast episodes with a like-minded friend. One share would be uh, great. So from Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next uh, week's uh, edition of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.